The following program is paid for by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council or its guests and do not reflect the opinions of KRLD or Intercom Communications. This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. And February is Heart Month, and we're going to be covering that here on the human side of healthcare throughout the month. Welcome to our program, Thomas Miller along with Steve Love. And one of the things I wanted to mention before we get to your conversation with Dr. Levine here in just a second is our podcast. So we have podcasts on all the major podcast players now. If you just search the human side of healthcare, you'll see all of our episodes. So if you don't get to catch them all live here, and one of the things that we have, and we're going to be including this conversation that you're having with Dr. Benjamin Levine in this, is we don't get to play everything all the time on the air. So if you'd like the full-length episode, those bonuses are in the podcast as well. Absolutely, and that is a very good point. You can hear the full-length podcast. And then our email address is radio at dfwhc.org. So now to kick off Heart Month, Steve is talking with Dr. Benjamin Levine, who is the founder and director of the Institute for Exercise and Environmental Medicine, which is a fascinating collaboration between Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital Dallas and UT Southwestern Medical Center. Dr. Levine's credentials are substantial, including degrees from Brown University and Harvard Medical School. Dr. Levine, thank you for being with us. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Can you tell our listeners what exactly is heart failure and how does it impact people's lives? Well, that's a big question, Steve. You know, heart failure in its broadest sense represents the inability of the heart to pump enough blood commensurate with the demands of the body. More broadly, not only does the heart have to pump blood, But it has to fill, it has to get the blood into it at a low enough pressure so that the blood doesn't back up into the lungs, into the feet, places where people who have heart failure typically will experience that. And and the way the heart works is it's basically a pump. It's a well-designed pump, and it fills in between heartbeats. That's called diastole. And then it has to pump the blood during the contraction phase. That's called systole. And many people are familiar with the kind of heart failure that we call systolic heart failure. Um, And that's heart failure if you've had a big heart attack, for example, and much of the heart muscle has been injured or damaged so that it prevents the ability of the heart to contract. That's sort of the most obvious kind of heart failure. The kind of heart failure that we're most interested in is, although not as obvious, perhaps even more common, especially among seniors. In fact, 50% of all heart failure cases in people over the age of 65 are what we call diastolic heart failure, meaning the heart looks for all the world like it's pumping just fine, but it's so stiff and it doesn't fill very well. So the pressure backs up and people are terribly short of breath and they can't do uh, their housework. They can't climb the stairs. They can't run around after the kids. They can't walk the dog. And, and it's been a great challenge because all of the therapies that we've evolved over the last 30 years for systolic heart failure, none of them have worked for diastolic heart failure. And so that's a big problem. So... When you run into the situations you just described, 
Is it treatable? Can it be reversed? Let me give you an analogy to help your listeners understand this. And, and this is why diastolic heart failure is so common with aging, particularly sedentary aging, and we'll come back to that. Let's say you've got a box of rubber bands, nice fresh box of rubber bands. Open the box, go ahead and stretch it. It's got that nice elastic feel to it. You stretch it and it snaps back. That is an example of a youthful tissue, youthful heart, youthful blood vessels. They expand to fill with blood and they snap back. Now, take that rubber band, stick it in a junk drawer for 25 years and pull it back out again. Now you stretch it and it's kind of tough and it loses its snap back. Well, that's what happens to many tissues of the body with aging, in particular the heart and the blood vessels. So let me ask you this. You know, many of our listeners, and sometimes we all kind of do this, go, well, does this really apply to me? It applies more to a family member or a friend or a business colleague. Heart failure and what you've seen in your studies and in your work, what percent of Americans does it touch? So heart failure is clearly one of the most important and expensive diseases of our time. Particularly heart failure or diastolic heart failure is almost epidemic in proportion in the elderly. And as our baby boomers uh, enter their senior years over the age of 65, um, and as the next generation heads into those years um, and people are living longer, it's absolutely critical for them to see what they can do to live better. That reduces healthcare costs by reducing dependency um, when you get older and enables people to continue to work and lead productive and happy lives, you know, as they reach years that, you know, 50 years ago, people didn't reach those years. So I think that there's little doubt that heart failure affects just about everybody. There's probably nobody uh, in the United States who does not have a family member or a friend who has heart failure. And I'll say again that 50% of all heart failure in patients over the age of 65 um, is due to this diastolic heart failure. Someone who's a baby boomer, who's now rolling into the Medicare years, if you will, over 65, is it too late for them? So I think there's no question that it's not too late. Now, I have to say, we can't tell such a patient that they're going to return to a youthful heart and blood vessels that they have when they're 30s, right? Exercise is not magic, but it certainly can prevent the progression of disease over time. So we think that's important. And of course, exercise makes people fitter and stronger reduces blood pressure. I mean, there are so many good things about it, right? It reduces your risk of developing diabetes, reduces your risk of developing Alzheimer's disease, reduces your risk of developing breast cancer, colon cancer. I mean, if you could have a pill that would do all those things, would you take it? Well, I Absolutely. Hope, I hope your audience will take that pill also. Dr. Levine, Thomas Miller here. I've got just a quick question. We only have a minute, but you are doing such amazing research and high blood pressure goes hand in hand. Any new developments on that front? One of the major risk factors for diastolic heart failure and for many cardiovascular diseases is hypertension. In the last five years, we've realized that blood pressures that we previously thought um, acceptable probably are too high and lower is better. One of the things some of our investigators at the IEEM are doing is a really unique strategy to improve blood vessel function. 
You know, when you go into a sauna, like the Finns do, you, you heat the environment, and the way humans thermoregulate, regulate body temperatures, is send blood to the skin. And you got to pump a lot of blood to the skin to control your body temperature. And as you do that, as you flow blood through the big blood vessels to get to the skin, it actually improves the health of the blood vessels. So they've got a new NIH grant looking at a novel approach to putting your legs in a hot water bath while you're watching TV for an hour. Increase the blood flow to the skin, relax those blood vessels, and it very well may be a really nice and easy adjunctive treatment, non-drug treatment for hypertension. This can be life-changing information, what you are hearing right now on the human side of healthcare. Steve Love and Dr. Benjamin Levine continue their heart conversation next for Heart Month on the human side of healthcare, next on KRLD. This program is paid for by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council. Healthcare is changing rapidly. The national debate is escalating and will be a big focus of this year's presidential campaign. We're here to help unpack these important topics, along with over 90 member hospitals across North Texas who are proud to bring you the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. Welcome back to the human side of healthcare. I'm Thomas Miller, along with Stephen Love, and we are talking with Dr. Benjamin Levine from Texas Health Resources and the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School about how to best take care of your heart. One of the things you're going to hear in this segment is Dr. Levine's incredible research. This is going to blow you away. How and when does exercise make the most difference in your life? This is going to surprise you and what to do if you are in your later years and haven't taken such great care of your body. Is it too late or not? Now, let's rejoin Stephen and Dr. Levine. Let me tell you an interesting story, if you don't mind, about how we figured all this out. So one of the most famous studies in our field was done here in Dallas in the 1960s. It was the Dallas Bed Rest and Training Study. And we took five young men, we put them to bed for three weeks, trained them for two months, and almost everything that we know about the plasticity, the adaptive capacity of the circulation comes from that original study. Now, I was only six years old at the time, so I had nothing to do with that first study. But in the mid-90s, we found those same five guys and brought them back to Dallas, now 30 years later. Wow. And we, uh, we, we found something quite remarkable. It turns out that not a single person, not one, was in worse shape 30 years later than they were after three weeks of bed rest when they were in their 20s. So three weeks of bed rest was worse for the body's ability to do physical work than 30 years of aging. And that's quite remarkable. And so we spent the last decade or two trying to figure out why that might be. And we do some unique testing in our lab. We actually put heart catheters in volunteer tiers so that we can measure this compliance, the flexibility or youthfulness of the heart and the blood vessels. And we, we started out by saying, well, let's pick the people who are the, the most strong and youthful that we can imagine. Let's take, for example, master's athletes. So we picked some of the best master's athletes in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex and, in fact, around the country. And we then selected a group of very healthy men and women no medical problems, no hypertension, no heart disease, but they were sedentary. 
and we measured the youthfulness, that flexibility of their hearts. And what we found was that quite dramatically, the hearts even of the individuals who were very healthy had shrunk and stiffened and couldn't fill at a low pressure anymore. But the heart of, hearts of the master's athletes were youthfully compliant, indistinguishable from healthy 30-year-olds. So we said, oh, that's great, but that's not a very good public health measure. So the next question we asked was, how much exercise do you need to do over a lifetime to preserve that youthfulness of the heart and blood vessels? So we partnered with our friends at the Cooper Clinic, and we, we divided them into four main groups. One group were sedentary, that is, they did relatively no, less than two days a week of regular exercise over 25 years. A second group did what we called casual exercise, two to three days a week of regular physical activity. Third group was a little bit more involved. They were what we called committed exercisers, four to five days a week of regular physical activity over 25 years. And then the last group was another group of, of uh, master's athletes, and we found, first of all, we confirmed the original findings. That is, being healthy but sedentary causes shrinking and stiffening of the heart. Being a master's athlete completely prevents that. What do you think happened to the people doing two to three days a week of training? Well, hopefully, uh, if they were doing two to three days, they weren't as sedentary and the outcomes you found were more positive. Absolutely nothing. Wow. So two to three days a week did make them a little fitter but it didn't change the structure of the heart and blood vessels at all. Now, four to five days a week of committed exercise seemed to get us pretty close, not all the way, but close enough to that youthful compliance flexibility of the master's athlete. So we said, okay, we got the dose down. You need to do four to five days a week of committed exercise over a lifetime. But when do you have to start? You know, do you have to do it from 20 what happens if you start when you're 70? And so we did that. We started people when they were 70. And although we can make them fitter, and there's no question that there are benefits to exercise training, even when you're older, frankly, we could not reverse a lifetime of sedentary behavior by training at the age of 70. Then we said, okay, let's take people over multiple decades, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And it turns out that the heart starts to have that stiffening right in that late middle age range, you know, that between 45 to 65. After that is when it starts to really atrophy and stiffen. And so we said, okay, looks like that sweet spot is going to be in late middle age. And so we took a group, a large number, almost 100, of sedentary, middle-aged, healthy individuals and we trained them for two years. And um, uh, we showed for the first time that you were able to reverse the effects of sedentary aging. Now, this study was published in January of 2018 in the American Heart Association Journal Circulation. And within six months, the AHA estimated that more than half a billion people had viewed or downloaded or tweeted or forwarded that article. Not half a million, half a billion. One of the most popular studies in the history of the medical literature. Shows you how important people, hopefully your listeners too, think this, this concept of how do we stay healthy for our lives? How, what do we need to do now 
and how do I get myself healthy? And so the American Heart Association was quite interested in this, and they, they, they have a series of competitive grants called Strategically Focused Research Networks. And our team at UT Southwestern um, applied for one of those grants. And what we did was we said, okay, we know we can make people who are otherwise well, we can reverse sedentary aging, but that's a lot of people. How do we find the people who are at most at risk for developing diastolic heart failure? So those people with diastolic heart failure typically are overweight, they have high blood pressure, they may have high cholesterol, and they're sedentary. So we partnered with the Dallas Heart Study to select uh, a group of people who had those risk factors. And they had to have evidence that there was already a little bit of injury going on in the heart. So we measured some blood markers. Your audience may have heard about some of those. Troponin, for example, is a, a high-sensitivity troponin, is a measure of subtle cardiac injury or NTBNP, which is a protein marker of heart stress. And if those were elevated, we said, okay, we got our high-risk group. And so we asked, can we see anything different between them and our sedentary people without those risk factors? And indeed we could. They were already starting to show signs of cardiac stiffening. So we said, okay, we got the right group. And then we trained them for a year. And we just presented these data in November at the American Heart Association meetings in Philadelphia, showing for the first time that, yes, we can still reverse the effects of high-risk heart failure with a preserved ejection fraction or diastolic heart failure. So exercise training, four to five days a week, begun in middle age in people who are at high risk, high blood pressure, diabetes, sedentary behavior. It's not too late to get going on an exercise program. You don't have to be a marathon runner, but four to five days of committed exercise is what's required to make that change. And I say to my patients all the time, you know, you need to make it part of your personal hygiene, right? Eat breakfast, take a shower. These are things you do every single day as part of your personal hygiene. And exercise has to be considered part of the overall things that you do to protect yourself and to preserve your ability to do the things you love to do as you age. So my prescription for life involves four to five days of exercise training on a regular basis. One day a week should be something that's fun and lasts at least an hour. Could be a dance class, could be a walk with a dog, whatever. One day a week should be something of higher intensity, some kind of interval training. And there are lots of different ways to do that. Two days a week or so should be something that is what we typically call moderate exercise, where you can talk or a little short of breath but can't sing. The talk test, lasting about 30 minutes. And one day a week of strength training. doesn't have to be pumping iron in the gym. could be Pilates, could be uh, tai chi, could be yoga, anything that requires strength and power. Thank you, Dr. Levine. In our next segment, we're going to talk to Charles Smith, and everyone needs to hear this. Medicaid 1115 waiver, it affects everyone financially 
here in the state of Texas. And this is whether you're on Medicaid or not. Absolutely. If you're not on Medicaid, you're still help pay for it. And you will pay for this if it doesn't get resolved. We'll tell you the whole story in the next two segments. The rest of the show is dedicated to this very important topic on the human side of healthcare. On 1080 KRLD and radio.com. This program is paid for by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council. This is the human side of healthcare on 1080 KRLD and the radio.com app, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. And welcome back to the human side of healthcare. I'm Steve Love, and in this segment, we're going to talk about the Medicaid 1115 waiver. Now, to many of our listeners, you may not even understand Medicaid, let alone the Medicaid 1115 waiver. But trust me, it impacts everyone. Whether you're covered through Medicaid or not, it helps look at people that need coverage and access, and it would impact everyone and impact you even in your premiums if we don't have good coverage for many of the people that qualify. We couldn't think of a better expert to bring in to talk to us about this than Mr. Charles Smith. Charles has been a real friend to the people of Texas. He has served as the Executive Commissioner in Health and Human Services Commission, and he really gives good advice and probably is one of the premier experts related not only to Medicaid, but the Medicaid 1115 waiver. Charles, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much, Steve, for having me. Let's assume for just a minute that we explain to people that Medicaid is a program that's federal and state that helps people that are hovering near the federal poverty line. Can you give us a good layman's definition of what is the Medicaid 1115 waiver? Absolutely. The Medicaid 1115 waiver is basically a partnership with the federal government and the state of Texas uh, to uh, allow for managed care program to be uh, created. Uh, it also provides for uncompensated care, reimbursement for the hospital safety net system, and it also implemented a delivery system reform program uh, that would allow the state to build out the infrastructure when it was assumed that more people would be applying for the Medicaid program through eligibility. You know, that's, uh, that's a great definition, and thank you for doing that. And Charles, to, to kind of reach our listeners so they really understand, this program has worked very well in Texas, and it has been a program that obviously is very complex, the funding mechanisms, and we're not going to peel back the onion and get into so much detail that our listeners can't follow it. But it is fair to say that one portion of this dealt with delivery system reform incentive payments we refer to as DISRIP through projects. The projects of DISRIP have benefited many Texans. Do you have thoughts related to that? You know, absolutely. And, and I might say that the best part about DISRIP and the way that DISRIP was implemented in Texas 
is that it was locally driven. Uh, the agency allowed local providers to develop programs and projects that they knew would best benefit their local constituents and uh, the individuals in their communities. And what they were able to do was ensure that people who didn't have access to, to health care were able to have simple things like diabetic testing. Uh, they worked with people on, on how to eat healthier foods. All of these things that can change a person's quality of life, and for the average taxpayer, it can lower their tax burdens because people are being treated preventively uh, before they enter hospitals and, and those type of things without having health care and, and drive up the cost. You know, you said a couple of things there that really resonate. One, health care truly is delivered locally. So when these projects are driven locally, it really hits the community need the most. The other thing you said that's so important, even if we don't participate in Medicaid or the Medicaid 1115 waiver, this can impact us financially. And you did a great job of explaining why. Now, Charles, the reason we took the time to kind of lay the framework for the 1115 waiver, the 87th legislative session, which is less than a year from now, it's January of 2021, is facing a financial cliff. Can you explain what that means? I will try to do that to the best of my ability because uh, it's a, a very convoluted process. But at its most simple form is the Medicaid waiver that is negotiated with uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, the federal government, says that the state can create a waiver, but it cannot cost the federal government more money than that they would pay if the state did not have a waiver. And, and so what happens is that the state will develop its projects and programs that it wants to have included in the waiver, and any funds that are below what the federal government would have paid outside of that waiver are appearing as a budget neutrality cap or as available uh, program space that the state could utilize. What the federal government has decided is that in the next iteration of the waiver, which will occur after 2022, is that the without waiver costs, those waiver programs that are not part of the Medicaid program uh, will actually go away. And what that means is that all of the uh, supplemental payments that are currently outside of the Medicaid program, and that is programs like DISHRIP is going away. Um, you will also see programs uh, much like uncompensated care, the uniform hospital rate increase program, uh, which benefits the safety net hospitals that see Medicaid individuals and also those who are uh, uninsured, as well as the network access improvement program, uh, which is used to bring more doctors and physicians into the Medicaid program by supplementing uh, their rates. These programs are on the risk of going away if they are not carved into the Medicaid program. And so what that means is that there could be a deficit of anywhere from uh, 6 to $9 billion a year for the state of Texas. 
And that is a huge number that will have lasting ramifications and shockwaves through the safety net system in Texas unless the legislature acts to either fill that deficit with some other type of funding or make adjustments to the Medicaid program to incorporate more individuals into the Medicaid program. You know, Charles, you said something. I want to make sure I heard that correctly. Did you say $7 billion to $9 billion, or did I misunderstand you? Oh, that is, that is correct. All of these supplemental payments that are currently a part of the Medicaid waiver will go away because new process will only count for funds that are paid toward Medicaid recipients that are inside the waiver. And so that is the amount that's currently outside that waiver. You know, that's a very important point. And I think to our listeners, you now see why we say it's a fiscal cliff, because those funds, if they go away and we don't have a mechanism in place, it's going to impact all of us, not just the people on Medicaid. You know, Charles, uh, another question for the listeners, and this is a difficult question, and I'm not in any way trying to put you on the spot. Please understand that. But let's assume these funds go away. Looking in your crystal ball, what would happen? Well, one of the things that would happen if these funds went away and were not replaced is the burden on local taxpayers in urban areas around the state uh, that currently provide for large shares of uninsured indigent care, as well as and this is uh, on the public hospital side as well as the private hospitals, because the private hospitals provide a, a, a significant amount uh, in some areas, up to 70% of the uncompensated care is, uh, occurs with private hospitals in Texas. And so you would see a significant deficit in this area. You could very well see uh, hospitals closing because of their reimbursement level. And then you would also see, for those of us who have are fortunate and have health care, uh, you would see premiums increase as those hospitals and providers uh, began to shift their rates toward those who have coverage and are having them pay a larger portion and share as they t- continue to care and take care of uh, those individuals that uh, don't have insurance. Uh, because there's a federal law called EMTALA that requires uh, hospitals to treat individuals who uh, come through their emergency departments and stabilize them. And if they don't have health care, then one of the aspects of the Medicaid waiver is uncompensated care that goes and and replaces uh, a significant portion of that, that cost. Thank you, Charles. I know that was a difficult question, but you answered it in such a way that hopefully our listeners realize Medicaid The Medicaid 1115 waiver, the renewal, if it goes away, will impact them. And this show is the human side of healthcare, and this truly is a human issue. And we want to make sure that we help educate our listeners. We are not going to be political, but at the same time, we want to bring health policy issues before them and try to explain to them so that we all, in a very collaborative spirit, improve the health of our community. 
And coming up next on the human side of healthcare, Stephen and I are going to unpack this topic even more because this will affect your wallet if it does not get resolved. Senator Nathan Johnson from the Dallas-Fort Worth area and Richard Carter from the Hunt Regional Healthcare System coming up next on the human side of healthcare. This program is paid for by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council. We're continuing our conversation on how you can empower yourself to have the best health possible in today's ever-changing healthcare environment. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. And welcome back to the human side of healthcare. Thomas Miller along with Stephen Love. And we're talking about this Medicaid 1115 waiver, which for most of us who are not in the healthcare industry is like a foreign language. But is your paycheck something that's relevant to you? Is the cost that you spend for healthcare dollars if you are self-employed like I am and you are buying it out there in the, in the uh, now the healthcare marketplace, is that important to you? And have you not noticed that you could drive a really nice car for what you have to pay for healthcare. So this is a very relevant conversation because if this doesn't clear, like what Charles and Stephen were talking about in the last segment, these costs could go up for all of us. Yeah, you know, that's a very important point, Thomas. As we look at the Medicaid 1115 waiver, and as we've talked about it, I can't emphasize enough some of the projects that have come out of this waiver. For example, the delivery system reform incentive payment. You may say, Steve, how does that affect me? Let me explain to you. Those DISRIP projects, and that's what we call them, help people that don't have insurance. It helps people receive a form of Medicaid 1115 waiver payments. It helps them receive the treatment. Now, if that wasn't there, and they weren't receiving that treatment, and they came to the emergency room, or they went to another provider, and they couldn't pay, and it was uncompensated, that is going to raise the overall cost, which then is going to impact everyone, whether you're in the Medicaid program or not. It's going to impact premiums. It's going to impact employers. And, you know, hospitals are large employers. We have large workforce we deal with health care costs on our employees just like anyone else out in the industry that may be non-health care. So this impacts every Texan, and that's why it is so important, Thomas. All right, let's put some humanity to this. Your, one of your board members, Richard Carter, is the CEO in Greenville of Hunt Regional Healthcare. Listen to what he says, one of those as you call it, DISRIP programs, does in East Texas. Uh, We've been very fortunate in some respects that we have here in Hunt County. We have a DISRIP project. We have actually five projects, but we have one specific DISRIP project that targets uh, behavioral health and substance abuse patients and is tied to the ER. And and the struggles that we have in rural communities and, and urbans as well is how do we provide for these important yet ultra challenging portions of our society whose medical care is often goes unmet. And so, for example, when we talk about mental health and substance abuse, this is not only just an ER issue, but they create some extreme situations and create havoc in the emergency rooms and the police services and even our jails. And it's typically because some of these underserved people and these people who don't have the resources to care for themselves 
can't get the medications and the counseling that they need. And when you are not able to receive these basic type of services and support, then often you lose your dignity and you can't control your behavior and you struggle. And so one of our projects that we're fortunate to have here in Hunt County that can impact this, which helps the ER, is a mental health clinic and a a substance abuse clinic. And we staff that with uh, two or three nurse practitioners. They respond to the outpatient ER mental health crises on a daily basis. And so Texas as a whole struggles with funding the behavioral health needs of our society. And as a result, those people who are uncovered, uninsured, unable to get the need, the help that they need, end up in the ER. And like I mentioned earlier, often create great havoc because uh, they're in crisis. That's the human side of healthcare right there. Oh, absolutely. Richard could not have done a better job of describing a disrupt project, in this case, for mental health and how early intervention in a clinic working with them through proper medication, helping them deal with the issue, as we say in healthcare, upstream, because that keeps that individual from reaching a crisis situation and coming to the emergency room. You know, Thomas, that's one example. There are other disrupt projects. Great example, managing diabetes. If you can manage diabetes upstream, so to speak, and you work with those patients before their A1C levels get so high and they show up at the emergency room in a real crisis situation, then you're going to do two things. First and foremost, you're going to do what's right for the patient. You're going to treat them in a very humane way, the human side of healthcare. Secondly, you're going to take cost out of the system. You've been in your position as CEO and president of the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council involved in this politically in Austin, and we'll get you to comment on that in just a second. But recently in our studios, Senator Nathan Johnson from Dallas came to talk about this. Let's listen to what his perspective on this from a legislative urgency, and then we'll have you comment. Uh, I think the state did a brilliant job of negotiating this 1115 waiver to operate outside uh, of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and it has been a great benefit to the state. Not as good as we could have done, but it's, it's been an important benefit. Uh, and it's an absolute uh, imperative that we address this right now because the benefits of that waiver are going away. Uh, it's not a possibility. It's actually going to happen. We stand to lose uh, $12 billion per budget cycle. Uh, And that's enough money that we can't do without it. It's going to be not just a devastating effect socially uh, on the people of Texas. It's going to be a devastating effect economically. You can't withdraw $12 billion from the economy without feeling severe damage. Uh, It's also very sad that uh, we are going to have people, and we presently have people still, who are unable to lead healthy, fulfilling lives in their own households, it's sad, but it's sad that they also can't get out there and earn a living and contribute in the way that all of us want to do. Um, So from a political perspective, we have a moral imperative to take care of our citizens, and we've got an economic imperative to make sure that we don't suffer the consequences of not finding some way to work with the federal government to bring our own tax dollars back to take care of our people. This is serious on all fronts. Absolutely. Senator Johnson outlined it, and I will just have to reiterate, Charles Smith, who was a guest here earlier, 
was one of the primary people that did an outstanding job on this Medicaid 1115 waiver. Their economic consequences, and candidly, as Senator Johnson said, there are moral consequences because we all want to do what's best for the people of Texas. Your crystal ball. My crystal ball is this. And again, we don't get into politics on this show. When I was in Austin and uh, actually uh, testified at the interim charges, it didn't matter if you were a Republican or a Democrat. The senators truly cared about the health of Texans. So I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic that we're going to work in a very collaborative fashion and we're going to have a successful Medicaid 1115 waiver to help replace the expiring funds that Senator Johnson referred to. Well, thank you for you, your efforts, Charles, everybody who we've brought into this program so far who are aware and working on this. And I know everybody is feeling the urgency of it, no doubt. Absolutely. We're going to work together cooperatively, collaboratively, and we are going to get it done. All right, let's talk about our podcast. There's a segue for you. (laughs) So we have all of our episodes online 24-7. If you don't catch the whole program here on KRLD or radio.com live, you can go to your favorite podcast app, search for The Human Side of Healthcare, and there you will find not only our shows in their entirety, but you will also find some bonus episodes. So when we don't have time to do the whole interview, like with Dr. Levine that we had in our first segment, his entire interview will be on the podcast. So you can check us out online, the human side of healthcare on the podcast. Now, coming up next week, another big issue in healthcare, the opioid crisis. You're so right. The opioid epidemic affects all of us. It could be a family member or friend. Please tune in next week. We're going to have Dr. Hardesty with us, and we're going to talk about many of the ramifications of opioid use. Please tune in. This is going to be the human side of healthcare, 1080 KRLD and radio.com. The previous program is paid for by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council or its guests and do not reflect the opinions of KRLD or Intercom Communications.